This program is brought to you by the James Wilson Institute on Natural Rights in the American Founding. If you'd like to learn more about the James Wilson Institute, please visit jameswilsoninstitute.org. We hope you enjoy the program. Hello and welcome to a special edition of the Anchoring Truths podcast. I'm your host, Garrett Snedeker. Today, we're doing something a little different. We're sharing with you an important recent lecture delivered by Professor Jerry Bradley under the banner of our James Wilson Institute. Professor Bradley is a trustee and senior scholar at the James Wilson Institute and also a professor of law at Notre Dame Law School, where he's taught for nearly 30 years. His lecture, we're immensely pleased to share with you, is titled Moral Truth and Constitutional Conservatism. We cannot endorse the lecture more highly as a distillation of what we're about at the James Wilson Institute. James Wilson Institute founder and director Hadley Arcus opens the recording with a full introduction of Professor Bradley. We hope you enjoy the program. Well, it is so good to see everybody. Can you hear me? It is so good to see everybody back. Um, and the Grenfells are here, and, and Mark, Benicia, it it's feels like the whole group reassembling. Uh, we're marking this weekend the 10th anniversary of this project. We're marking it a year late because of COVID. Uh, so it's a thing to be savored that I can introduce Jerry Bradley tonight, especially to this group again, because we've come to a point of inflection, as they say, in this project of the James Wilson Institute. We have decisions to make about the expansion, revving up our programs, the extension of our reach. And Jerry's advent, as I call it, Jerry's advent is uh, coming to join me in this project. It's a critical point of assurance that this project and the recovery of natural law will be sustained and will be strengthened. Our aim, just, it's, you know, since, since this is just a renewal, I want to give you some, draw some things from Jerry's writings. But I thought we'd just take a two minutes to, rec to recall a sense of what, what we were about here. Our aim, getting good, was to deliver lawyers and judges and ordinary folk from the superstition that there's something esoteric about the natural law, something with an arcane vocabulary, a collection of foggy high sentiments lofting up there in the sky with very little bearing on those practical judgments that we have to make every day. And what we try to show is that we find the ground of the natural law, rather, uh, in those anchoring axioms of reason, those maxims of common sense, as Thomas Reed told us, that the average man simply has to take for granted, take as unavailing, just to get on with the ordinary business of life. And those are the kind of axioms of reason, axable, we used to say, by nature, onto the one kind of creature, a creature of reason. And so they form, of course, the ground of the, that law, which is natural to human beings. They're the axioms that lawyers fell back upon every day, so ingrained that they may no longer even notice that they're using them. So it doesn't take a lawyer. Any man on the street readily grasps what Kant and Thomas Reed regarded as the truly first principle of moral and legal judgment, that it makes no sense to cast moral judgments of blame and praise on people for acts they were powerless to effect. 
And another track, uh, our dear late friend Dan Robinson used to remind us that the amnesia may doubt who he is. He doesn't doubt that he is. He would be safe from the kind of feigned bewilderment that Descartes offered to say, I think, therefore I am, and to which Thomas Reed said, you might as well have said, I'm sleeping, therefore I am. I am doing nothing, therefore I am. His existence was one of those anchoring truths which he could never have doubted for a moment. Uh, it's a notable but unnoticed event when the child wakes up one day, assuming he is the same person he was the night before. That ball with the sun, that was his that yesterday, is still his ball, as he's given today. Uh, though Mr. Biden affects at times to deny that he is the one who said the things recorded that week, last week, but that, that's another point. Uh, Jones may insist that he has undergone a crisis of faith since he committed that embezzlement last month. He's a quite different person, but regrettably, he is the judge we have at hand, the one who's going to be punished for the thing his earlier self did a month ago. And when the president of Princeton, an accomplished biologist, refers in a lecture to a pre-embryo, she's quickly made to concede under questioning that she's talking about, what she's talking about is not a being separate from the one we would call later an embryo. It's the same entity during different phases of its development, and precisely the same being we'll come to call later Nancy Pelosi. <laughs> now, that may, that may offer a sort of a glancing reminder of what we're about. And it brings us to this moment that I've marked uh, as the advent of Jerry in this project. Because he's been, over 30 years, one of the most gifted writers and teachers dealing with the pressing issues of the day, but trying also to bring us back to those deep, substantive truths that underlie the law we're trying to shape. About 30 years ago, in the early 90s, I took a nostalgic trip back to, the sh to Champaign-Urbana for a conference at the University of Illinois at the law school. And there I met Jerry, marking his beginning as a writer and a speaker and a scholar with a special interest in religion. And, and coming with his classmate at Cornell, Pam, to launch a family. He moved to Notre Dame, and what would follow would be a remarkable productivity with writing and the family. And he'd become one of the truly leading voices on the defense of religious freedom. He'd also become an active presence in the pro-life cause and going on to a series of writings, but also briefs and before congressional committees. And I remember joining him at least once on one of those occasions. A dozen years ago, some of us gathered in Princeton to mark the 25th anniversary of Richard Newhouse's legendary book, The Naked Public Square. Jerry had a chapter in the book that came out of it. I think Jerry's chapter, I think, is among one of the finest things that could be written on religion and the law within this Constitution and the American regime. He recounted there the now familiar reflexes of conservative justices on the court to try to protect religious symbols by trying to give some other secular account of them. That some of these things are so familiar, just assimilated into the world that we know. Or that we respect these symbols, as Chief Justice Rehnquist said, 
because they're part of a long tradition with a sense that our nation was founded on a fundamental belief in God, to which Jerry said, several layers of hearsay insulate the Chief Justice's analysis. Our traditional institutions, traditional concept, the national culture, all of this stand between Rehnquist's approving note and the living affirmation of a God that exists. One of the hidden truths, as Jerry recognized, is that even conservative justices will fall back on the premise that secularism must be the default position. And so just last week, we had an oral argument at the court in which the genius of the court seemed to be expended on the question of whether Joseph Kennedy, coaching football, was on the job under the auspices of the public school system when he knelt on the 50-yard line after the game to say a prayer or whether he was acting off time in his private time. Whether there's something illegitimate about seeing people pray is a question for another day. And praying, by the way, to the God mentioned in the Declaration of Independence, the author of the laws of nature and the creator of those inalienable rights. We often look back to George Washington's famous letter to the Hebrew congregation in Newport, where he said, it is now no more that toleration is spoken of as if it were the indulgence of one class of people that another enjoyed the exercise of their inherent natural rights. Now that was a remarkable point, not, not noticed enough. The right to religious freedom should be seen as nothing less than a natural right, that is, a right we can expect others to understand and respect on the basis of reason, even though they don't respect the teachings that mark the substance and character of that religion. In that essay years back on Father Milhouse's book, Jerry caught this problem exactly, and he said, the divine realities affirmed in the Declaration of Independence a unitary God who created all there is, who providentially guides human events, and whose effects include naturally known moral truths, could be known and were known by reason alone. These truths were elements, as Jerry said, of natural theology, natural religion. They were, as he said, natural truths about God. In other words, it was a high test of the notion of natural rights, and it could be explained finally and solely by the reasoning of the natural law. That's the big argument. We wanted Jerry to draw this afternoon on this recent remarkable long law review article on moral truths and the constitutional conservatism. And that's something we hope to see come out as a book, because when it does, it would be one of the most signal and most important books in this new wave of ours to make the natural law accessible again. I think there could be no better talk than to mark the 10th anniversary of this project. So let me welcome Jerry Bradley for this book.
Well, thank you, Hadley. I, I don't mean to reply to Hadley's introduction, but I do think I, I feel obliged to clarify one thing. He, one of his drive-by comments, uh, he mentioned productivity, and then he talked about a lot of things I've written, uh, but he just, under his breath, said, and family. Uh, now, that's a reference to the fact that Pam and I have had children. And I will simply put it this way to you. I, I, people might meet them first, or they might even ask, oh, do you have a family? And I've taken, just to see the reaction on people's faces, to uniformly saying, oh yes, we have children, but just eight. <laughs> and um, the 10 of us in the immediate family, only six are lawyers. So far, but out of respect, and I do have respect for diversity and minority status, I've invited one of my sons, the oldest boy Kevin here, sitting in the back row, uh, the one that's kind of draped informally over the chair. Uh, but he's, he's one of the non-lawyers in the family. Kevin is a very successful businessman here in Falls Church. But I have to say, in, in all sincerity, that it's humbling to kick off the JWI's 10th birthday party uh, I see several of you present who were present at the creation and are more qualified in additional ways than I am for this task. But Hadley asked me, and I think it was mainly because Hadley Aukus is one of those great comedians who likes to feature his second banana uh, from time to time. <laughs> now I'm honored to stand before you now. Muzzle talk to you who have made the JWI the success that it is, not just to Garrett and Michael and other Ham Amherstian admirers of Dr. Arkey's, but to you judges and scholars who began the work at dawn. I was rather late to the party. You labored through the heat of the day while I idled about the marketplace. <laughs> Yet I share equally in the joy of the occasion. And I do cherish the opportunity, this public opportunity, to express my admiration and affection for Hadley. As he said, we met when I organized a conference in Champaign-Urbana, now decades ago. Robbie George says that in off hours, Hadley walked him around Urbana, pointing out locations where the legend that is now Hadley began. Hadley and I have since been frequent co-conspirators, he mentioned we've testified in Congress together. Now we were regulars at what Hadley liked to call one of Richard Newhouse's floating crap games. Now this was a gathering that was called by most other people, including Father Newhouse, the Ramsey Colloquium. And it was not staged, Hadley, in Joey Biltmore's garage, uh, but by the way, at the Union League Club in Manhattan. But Hadley has been for me, for decades, a model scholar, a courageous defender of life and truth, and a dear friend. So being among friends, I candidly confess, well, to more than a little performance anxiety. Besides the weight of the occasion, I know that Hadley expects me to be very, very funny. Yet he steadfastly refuses to lend me his joke book. So I feel like Ed McMahon would have if he were doing the Tonight Show monologue with Johnny Carson sitting in the audience. Now I mean to talk about contemporary constitutional conservatism and the place of critical moral reasoning within it. It could be a very short talk, for that movement of thought is defined by a stated commitment to originalism. 
that is, to interpreting the Constitution according to its original public understanding as nearly as possible, given the limitations of historical sources and the development of the law since the founding. This defining commitment of constitutional interpretation is sound. Originalism is sound because it recognizes two crucial things, that the constitutional text remains authoritative and that the point of interpreting it is to understand the meaning that those who made the Constitution authoritative, authoritative intended to convey by ratifying it. But since the 1980s, I'd say the mid-1980s, conservatives have wed sound originalism to a doctrine of judicial restraint, a normative approach to how judges should judge that is allergic were extremely wary to critical moral reasoning. Conservatives most often call this pollen value judgments. They say that legislators get paid to make them and that judges who rightly understand their job don't. In the event, this value, I'll call it value neutralist methodology, has eclipsed originalism. I say that because in my judgment, inoculating judicial interpretation of the Constitution against inroads by or infection by judges moralizing what Justice Scalia described regularly as a judge's predilections, avoiding the judge's predilections infecting or infesting the law has become the overriding desideratum of what counts today as conservative originalism. That's the prime directive from Starfleet Command. Avoid predilections. So Supreme Court nominees, red and blue, insist, I would never dream of imposing my morality on the law. Well, of course not. What's imposing got to do with it? But what if the text calls for a critical moral judgment for its sound that is faithful interpretation. And anyway, what's the possessive got to do with it? Why is, what's the work being done by the modifier of morality, my morality, is simply to turn the discussion into a discussion of something else, namely predilections. It's my own moral view, but who's to say it's more than just my own moral view? Now this whole project was articulated vividly by John Roberts at his 2005 confirmation hearing. Being a justice is like being an umpire calling balls and strikes. Now the image, this image, is misplaced even as an aspiration. In fact, baseball is experimenting with automated umpires now. Do we really want constitutional law that could be done by a robot dressed in black robes? Siri sitting behind a big wooden bench? Can you imagine selling for $179.99 turbo con law? Now, as a description of actual constitutional adjudication, the umpiring analogy is ridiculous. But it's worse than that because the balls and strikes thing is integral to the more startling claim that the Supreme Court justices don't make law. Now, still talking about the umpiring analogy, the SCOTUS nominee then asserted at the confirmation hearing, that even though there is some role for judicial discretion, and here I'll quote the nominee, that doesn't mean that we're doing anything other than applying law. It's law all the way down. You know, you're looking at the text. 
You're looking at structure. You're looking at history. You're looking at precedent. You're looking at law, and only at law, not your political preferences, not your personal preferences. Later, the nominee insisted that a judge looks at the facts of each case, listens and understands the arguments of the parties, and applies the law as the law commands. It's a, ref no, I'm still quoting. It's a refrain I keep repeating because that is my philosophy of judging, applying the law to the facts at hand. And that's my description of judging. Now, I suppose these could be two sides of the same coin. That is, the neutralist, neutralism about values and this, this claim that it's law all the way down, just apply the command of the law. They could be two sides of the same coin. If you're not making any law, then maybe you don't need no stinking value judgments. But if you don't do values, well, you better not try making law. But if you do make law, and the Supreme Court surely does, often, and to great consequence, you better have the genuine common good plainly in view. And that includes the true well-being, the true good of everyone whose common good it is. Now, for a recent pristine expression of this constitutional conservatism, take a look at A on your handout. It's Justice Kavanaugh at the Dobbs oral argument. Now, when I composed these remarks a few weeks ago, I wrote at this particular juncture in my talk that A is a my idea of a preview of the court's decision in Dobbs. Then I was guessing, uh, guessing's passe now, I guess. Uh, Justice Alito does not use the term neutrality in the leaked opinion at least not that I remember. But the remarks in A, Kavanaugh's remarks to the lawyers at the oral argument, represent exactly the holding of the draft opinion. And I offer A tonight not as a forecast of the final opinion, but rather as a specimen of the characteristic place of moral values in constitutional conservatism today. There isn't one. My argument is that conservatives' pledge of moral abstinence undermines originalism, and thus the proper interpretation of our Constitution. The price that is paid for this moral neutrality, I think, is actually fidelity to the Constitution. And that's a bad bargain. So let me explain in six short stanzas. One. To do the history that originalists must do, one has to enter into the founders' very different mental world. Not just go there and acquire their vocabulary and definitions so that you're historically literate, but to get the animating concepts, the modes of practical reasoning, value judgments, and sharp but subtle moral and political distinctions that were taken for granted then to achieve genuine understanding now. Otherwise, the founder's documentary trail is a jungle of disconnected verbal symbols, an indecipherable Greek word salad, data with no antibodies against manipulation by law office historians. 
Now these legal posers are now joined by the professional sort, by Ivy credentialed historians whose expert amicus briefs cook the past to make judicial, progressive judicial outcomes seem old fashioned. Now in this first stanza, I'm not talking about judges making value judgments. I'm talking about the precise philosophical drill bits they need to excavate the value judgments which the founders actually made and which remain authoritative for us. Now the most important illustration of what you get with blunt drill bits is the catastrophe doing business as establishment clause doctrine. It's a hot mess. It engulfed the many opinions in the Bladensburg Cross case like molten lava. The court in the Bladensburg Cross case reached the right result, but only by bleaching that religious memorial of its sacred meaning. The court said time had secularized it. Maybe so. But that conclusion was dictated by deranged constitutional doctrine more than by the facts of the matter. The Bladensburg decision adhered to precedents requiring a secular purpose for government action. That's an architectonic norm which the justices have long insisted in case after case dripping with history is the strict command of the founders. But secular is a word the founders rarely used and never in connection with church-state matters. The court decades ago decided to secularize our public life. And to do that, the justices had to ignore the distinction, the crucial distinction, without which the whole constitutional tradition concerning religion is perverted. Namely, the difference between the truths of natural religion which are, were, warp and woof of the civic fabric at the founding and for decades, even centuries thereafter, and the contents of revealed and positive religion, which are the preserve of the churches. Historian Owen Anderson aptly wrote in 2021, the United States was founded on natural religion. Yet, as Hadley indicated just a little while ago, this whole concept quoting me, note you. Uh, but Hadley said, and I say, this whole concept of natural religion is invisible in the church-state corpus. Note, too, that natural religion is and was understood to be philosophy. It's not religious faith. Okay, it's a secular prologue to faith. Now, the justices have sometimes deemed expressions of religion like the Bladensburg Cross, secular, by saying that they represent an instance of what they call ceremonial deism. But this is a desperate anachronism. Two first-rate historians of the founding, neither of whom favors such displays of faith, have written convincingly that ceremonial deism, and here I quote Isaac Kramnik, and Larry Moore, both of Cornell. Their words, ceremonial deism is a phrase that would have meant nothing to our founders, close quote. So too, I say, with the whole idea of what we call civil religion. Now, note well, I'm talking here that is thus far entirely about what conservative justices have been writing. 
Now, one reason for this amnesiac debacle is that these justices have looked at this part, this part of our past through philosophical lenses crafted yesterday down at eyewear discount. They seem to suppose, too, that all affirmations about divine realities are matters of faith, intuition, feeling, not reason. They write, there's the conservatives on the court, write as if there's no such thing as natural religion. Now that conclusion could be true, but if you presuppose that it is true, I think you're making a value judgment and one that's totally out of sync with the world of the founders. Second stanza. It's not just recovering yesterday's value judgments that requires a keen grasp of sound moral reasoning. Intelligently eschewing value judgments today requires more philosophical sophistication than the conservatives typically display, and given their allergy, may be able not, maybe they're not able to cultivate the required sophistication. Go to B on your handout. B, from June Medical, part of the Chief Justice's opinion in June Medical, the abortion case, the admitting privileges case, a couple of three years ago. Now here the Chief Justice is taking stock of abortion regulations, which are, as he sees it, chock full of unjudicial value judgments. But which values does the Chief see? There's no such thing as potential life. Harry Blackman invented that term in Roe to make his decision there seem less barbaric. What the state's interest in protecting this notional entity would be is anyone's guess. Women's health, as described in the, the abortion jurisprudence, in Roe and Doe especially, is a commodious legal term of art that refers to all aspects of a woman's well-being as she understands her well-being. It's just another way of saying that a pregnant woman gets to have an abortion, gets to make that decision unilaterally, for any or for no reason. That's abortion on demand. There's nothing of value there to evaluate. Her word is law. Now, the Casey mystery passage, which the Chief Justice refers to in cites, does not identify any particular moral value either. It is rather the universal solvent. All the diverse objective goods which constitute human flourishing disappear under the influence of the mystery passage into the maws of a raw subjectivity. According to the mystery passage, all value resides in the act of choosing of a decision being really, really, really mine. What I choose is a matter of value indifference. That is to say, what I choose is a matter of indifference. Why should the moral truth get in the way of my imagination? What the heart wants, the heart wants. There is no need to eschew critical moral reasoning if this is the deal. Critical moral reasoning is here impossible. Even Socrates will get stuck and drown in this muck. Okay, Roberts evidently holds also that any court decision in this area would be an act of will, brute force of the, of the judicial say-so, 
presented to others, Roberts holds, as a neutral utilitarian calculus. But there's nothing neutral about utilitarianism. And there are workable ways to compare, commensurate, if you will, real, albeit incremental goods, such as the emotional health of one person, call her mom, and the life of another person, whom some would call her baby. We do it all the time when we punish a distraught mother for smothering a colicky infant. Our law of the justified use of deadly force, which limits that use, permissible legal use of deadly force, to prevent death or serious bodily injury to another person, is not an act of will. It is rather a norm of justice commensurating, if you will, different goods, and you do this by use of the golden rule of fairness. Now, thinking as does Roberts will also give you a ghastly hangover. He is keen to offload to the Pauls at the State House the dirty business of ruling by arbitrary decree. You know, they do that kind of thing over there. Now, this is a most unappealing prospect. Who wants to be governed by anybody's predilections? Now, this grim picture, if it were true, would be one we'd have to make our peace with. Uh, but I think it's actually gratuitous. It's kind of scaremongering in this context. Now, unless, unless the relevant moral knowledge is actually impossible, and if not impossible, as rare as our pro-life Democrats. Now, there surely is a profitable discussion to be had about how and by which criteria proper judicial lawmaking should be distinguished from the legislative sort of lawmaking. And that, in a way, is Roberts' central interest. Again, there's a lot to be said with great profit about that distinction. But Robert's bombast does not promote that discussion. My larger point is that anyone who says that they do not do value judgments and tries hard not to make value judgments and tries hard not to be seen by others as making value judgments is less prone to discern and to gauge the real values in a given case so as even to intelligently steer around them. So maybe value judgments are like pornography. Exhausted by the platoon of obscenity cases he battled each term, Potter Stewart finally declared in 1964 that though he could not define hardcore porn, he sure knew it when he saw it. He stands at the third. Maybe the Chief Justice is shamming us, being ironic. Maybe he knows what we know. Is the chief in, this, in B figuratively holding his nose and rolling his eyes as if he's saying, yeah, only brute force of will could possibly navigate the bizarro moral world made by an activist Supreme Court, you know, launched on this, you know, this abortion rights crusade by Harry Blackman. Well, indeed, look again at B. The Casey Mystery Passage is in bold. And yes, it is a mosh pit where sound moral norms rooted in everyone's true good used to live in constitutional law. The mystery passage has transposed traditional moral categories into categories of the heart, 
the imagination, the will. I would say that it sends off emanations from its penumbra, but doing so would be an insult to the Griswold opinion. I mean, Griswold was, I grant you, mostly dreamy crap, uh, but the gauzy rhetoric there anchored, or was anchored by a real good, namely marital privacy, right? That's the, the phrase that most commonly or most often is repeated in Griswold, marital privacy. Back when, and here I quote Griswold, that union was a coming together for better or worse of man and woman, hopefully enduring and intimate to the degree of being sacred. Who says the 60s were all messed up? Now the mystery passes disengages value from reality. In Roe, the baby that everyone sees moving, sucking a thumb, even smiling, on sonograms was replaced by a potential state interest in potential life. The reality of sex as innate, binary, and immutable has been displaced by one's subjective sense of self as male, female, or other gender identity. As Dr. Paul McHugh and I wrote last year in commentary, and I'm quoting Paul and myself here, the champions of the transgender campaign rest their arguments on an essentially solipsistic view, my truth, that endorses the individual's will, sense, or sentiments rather than in what is demonstrably real. Marriage was hijacked by the mystery passage in Obergefell where the court brazenly installed the melodramatic doppelganger. Okay, here it is. Uh, you could use less of Jack Daniels at this point. So this is Kennedy and Obergefell. Marriage responds to the universal fear that a lonely person might call out only to find no one there. Now, even on a greeting card, that trickly sentiment would make me puke. <laughs> Anyway, our lonely guy doesn't need to redefine marriage. He needs a cocker spaniel. <laughs> or maybe Amazon's Alexa. Obergefellian marriage is a companionate relationship with no essential orientation towards having children. It's by the adults, for the adults, of the adults. Not coincidentally, sexual morality is supplanted by sexual identity. Now my point here in this stanza is that the moral rot in constitutional law is so deep and so widespread that conservatives can buy nothing, nothing off the shelf. Everything has to be tailor-made. Every case that comes before them presenting questions about or implicating or in the neighborhood of values has to be unpacked, fumigated, and built anew even just to gauge honestly what is at stake in the case. Casey said that the mystery passage was the heart of constitutional liberty. Conservative justices need to do major surgery on this distended organ, preferably without anesthesia. This program has been brought to you by the James Wilson Institute on Natural Rights in the American Founding. If you'd like to learn more about the James Wilson Institute, please visit jameswilsoninstitute.org.
Thanks for listening.